Monday morning, Tuesday. Hope you guys had a happy Memorial Day. I've got a new tripod set up here, so I don't know if things are going to be... I think it looks all right here. How's the audio? Let me know. Give me a five by five if we're looking good. Nothing but the best production around here. So I had uh, a scary thing. Pretty, uh, a scary thing happen. Uh, I guess I guess it was Sunday uh, that I thought I would speak to uh, and lead off, kind of lead off this podcast or this live stream with that. That because a lot of you are getting into a particular sport of a dual or dual sport motorcycle enduro. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about the basics of personal protection because I am convinced um, something happened to me on Sunday that was the only reason that I'm here being able to talk to you today and not suffering from a severe injury is just is because of particular equipment that I was wearing. And I, I'll t to be honest with you, you know, I, I understand the importance of this and, and I've invested in, in good armor, uh, everything you know, anything that's available out there that can give me a better chance of survival or prevent having injury, I'm all about that, especially when you get older, you know, you don't heal up quite as quick. But also, so being aware of this, I've also been somewhat cavalier with it in that, um, yes, if we're going to go up and, and we're going to go with the boys, the war band's going to go up and do a hard enduro, you know, we're dressed to the nines. We've got all of our stuff, all of our armor, the best you can get. But there's many times that after you know after work or in the evening you know i'll jump on the bike maybe throw on a helmet maybe a pair of boots and a pair of gloves and say well i'm just going to go out and just kind of do kind of a quick turn you know nothing crazy i don't need all of this protective equipment well this is one of those situations where well i'll just tell you what happened so this was sunday uh, there were four of us uh, my son jack and and my two of my buddies were riding and it was towards the end of the ride you know, the point where you are getting really confident and you've got several hours on the bike and such. And, you know, just I want to talk about presumption and how it can bite you, how, how terribly it can bite you. Now, when you're pushing up into the mountains in the springtime, you know, there's kind of an understanding that you may be the first person that's been up there since the snow has fallen. So you, you always are super cautious. You don't know what's around the corner. You don't know if there's going to be Sounds good. You don't know if there's going to be a, a snag down, uh, rocks in the road, what have you. So you, you kind of move forward somewhat cautiously. Now, if you've traveled the same road, it's not Friday, Mama. You can't be up here. If you traveled the same road over and over again, and it's obviously clear, it's something you just don't even consider anymore. And that's what really happened. So what happened is we were on a fire road. It was gravel, nice, smooth, uh, kind of a main fair. It's kind of windy and slowly winding downhill, rolling hills and such, you know, no big deal, no, nothing gnarly. I was in the lead of the four bikes uh, on my TE300 and I came down and I'm starting to spool it up, man. I'm first, second, third, fourth, fifth gear and it's an open road with no real sharp turns or anything. I know the road very well. I know I can take these roads at high speed. I can take all these corners at 50, 60. I just clicked into sixth gear with a handful of throttle. So that's probably for me on my bike with my gearing, probably about 50 miles an hour, 50, 55 miles an hour when I was traveling. I came over a rise and the gravel road went down and about 50 feet in front of me was a, was a great big old ponderosa pine snag across the road obliquely, trailing away from me at the right. Now I'm 50, 55 miles an hour on the pegs, uh, you know, going, clicked into sixth gear, 
And over this rise, 50 feet from me, I see this log across this big old gnarled ponderosa pine that had just fallen down. I had traveled that road many times, even that very day. But sometime in, in between me going there and coming back, uh, the wind had blown down a snag that wasn't there previously. And the, and the fact that it was on the downhill slope made it impossible to see, even standing. When I came over there, this was one of the worst motorcycle accidents I've ever had, and I've had quite a few of them. I've been riding since I was on the road since I was 16. Came over the corner and saw that, immediately grabbed the brakes, and I knew inst instantly that I did not have nowhere near enough time to stop. Probably need, on that road, probably needed double that. Closed the 40 feet pretty quickly and was right on the log and decided to put the bike down, put the bike into a skid, got my foot out from underneath of it, and I... It, it's so clear, the whole thing, and how I was able to do this without getting seriously injured is, is absolutely beyond me and a miracle. But it's a big portion of it is the protective gear. And I think that I'll, I'll never, ever go out again without wearing everything for this very reason. And this time I was wearing all of my, my best stuff. The bike is careening into the log. Um, I'm looking at it. I'm on, basically on top of the bike, surfing the thing. It's down in the gravel sliding. I made the decision, like, if I hit that log with all those branches and everything, you know, that's going to be really, really bad. And so I decided, well, I'll try to jump over it. Right when the bike slides into underneath and, and wedges hard up underneath the, um, the log, I jumped up as high as I could over the log into a somersault and landed on my head and on my right shoulder about 20 feet away on the backside of the log and scooted and skidded down the, the road and, and kind of got back up on my feet. It was on my back when I, when I landed. As I remember, it happened so quickly, I went from grabbing a handful of throttle in sixth gear in, in just seconds to being on my back after this horrific experience. I, I mean, even a couple days later, you know, it's still, I still have nightmares about it. I was, it was so scary and so terrifying. When I was laying there on the ground, I thought, I started thinking, okay, so what's going to be broken? Most likely collarbone, you know, maybe shoulder, who knows, back, uh, you know, because it was so fast. It just happened so quickly. And I noticed that I wasn't really in pain. And I remember very distinctly hitting my head and very distinctly hitting the top of my shoulder, uh, but it was not a hard impact. It did, there wasn't any pain. And, and I stood up and I was just standing there looking at the, the dust and all of my buddies came down, you know, they were behind me and they're like, goodness, you know, they couldn't believe I was still on my feet after what happened. And, and I, was, I was, but there was nothing wrong with me. Like, <laughs> this whole, you know, 650, 60 miles an hour, you know, stuffed right into a tree, jump over it and sliding down the gravel and stuff. Um, it's a miracle that I was able to, to not have any, well... I had a few, got a few injuries, you know, when you, after, when you, in a situation like that, the adrenaline and the shock is so intense that you don't really feel stuff, and then the next day you start to feel it, so a couple of minor injuries, little hand problem, you know, cuts and scrapes, but nothing, you know, nothing really that bad, um, but man, a cautionary tell, tale, beloved, if you are getting into dual sport, you can become very complacent, especially if you're spending a lot of time on the road and thinking, I don't need this equipment, I don't need this gear, but I would highly encourage you to do that. So we'll go over what I wear and what I would recommend. This, this is an expensive, it's a hard thing to buy this equipment, I get that, especially when you just threw the coin down on a brand new bike, you know, now you got to buy boots, now you got to buy a helmet, etc. But 
you got to do it. Uh, you got to do it. So I will start with probably the most important. There's there's a couple things that I would not go without. I would not go. We'll just start with the bottom. Uh, you got to have some motorcycle boots. Motorcycle boots. And I would just go ahead and just get these. Save, save for these because <laughs> these are the best. These are the best boots and they will last you a long, long time. Uh, CD Dominators. Italian CD. Are these Dominators? No, Crossfires. CD Crossfire boots are very good uh, for Proho because if you want, if you're not just a hardcore extreme guy that's going to be on the track all the time, you're probably going to want to walk around. And you may break down or get stuck or crash or something where you need to walk out of a particular area. These are very comfortable boots and probably the best that you can buy. Again, Italian made, really good flexibility, really good fit. My last pair, I just replaced them. I had my last pair for eight years. Um, and finally, it was just burning through the bottoms. They were just getting really soft, kind of worn. This is a whole system that I'm going to share with you that will completely protect almost every portion of your body. It's all designed to work together. Why boots are so important for dual sport and motorcycle is because your feet are very vulnerable. They're down in the rocks, they're down in the branches, in the sticks, twigs. You can run over stuff with your tire and it will flip up and hit your feet. You can come too close to rocks. I've actually hit these so hard that's moved my bike over. I've never had a foot injury and I've never had any sort of issue since I've been wearing these and I cannot speak high enough for them. So motorcycle boots are very important. Not to mention front impact. They're gonna protect your shins all the way up to your knees um, in a hard, flexible shell. These are excellent boots and the best money can buy, in my opinion. So even if you don't go with the CDs, the Crossfires, you know, get something reputable from like Alpine Star makes a good boot as well. The next thing um, that I just feel completely naked and I will not ride without um, are proper knee braces. Now this is the next level, next layer. So as your boot is going to protect your shin, your knee brace is actually going to go inside a little bit of your boot. So now you have full-on protection here for the front, um, for your kneecap, and all the way up to your side, thigh with this really tough reinforced carbon fiber knee brace. Now knee braces are hard to buy and a little bit hard to get used to, but once you start riding with them, you, you will not be able to ride without them you'll feel naked. It, it, for me to go riding and get on a bike without proper knee braces uh, would be like riding without a helmet. That, that's how naked and exposed I would feel, would not be very comfortable with it. Knee braces do a couple things. Of course, they, they protect, you have an you know, impact resistance, obviously, but the most important thing is they will not let you hyperextend and tear up your, is it your ACL or what have you. It has limiters on it and you can adjust these. So once these are strapped on, you know, these are considered medical devices. If you have knee problems and you have a good doctor, they can actually write you a prescription for these and you can get, sometimes you can get your insurance to pay for these, you know, because they're going to be, they're going to start at $600 and go on up from there. If you just want something off the shelf that has been so good, the Asterix, the lightest weight, excellent knee braces. I absolutely love these. I even wear these now when I'm on my one, one wheel. Um, I wear them all the time, snow bikes, everything. I feel very protected with knee braces. So knee braces after your boots are really, really important and something that you want to definitely save for and consider. After the knee braces, you're going to have your base body armor, which for me, you know, which is going to be against your skin, which for me is going to be two different items. Um, your riding shorts. These are made by Liat. 
I think Liat makes the, uh, it's a French company. I think that they make the best soft body armor, the best materials, the most research into it. And I would not ride without these either. I fell, I'll tell you gentlemen, I fell off my one wheel last year in Bend and I wasn't wearing these like I typically do with the nice pads on the hip, like on the hip bones here. And I was, I, I hit a rock on my hip and it took me a long time to recover from that. Had I been wearing these, I would not have suffered all of that pain. They also have a very smart pad, um, padding type, type of technology that is very soft and it's almost gooey, like a clay, um, like rubbery, soft clay, like a silicone, but it hardens upon impact. So it's a, quite an interesting technology. So it moves and flexes with your body really, really well, but the moment you come in like hard ground or something, it will stiffen up um, and offer a lot of protection. These are very important because they protect your hip bones here they protect your thighs on the front. They basically take over where the knee braces stop. This is all the system is designed to work together. So as you're coming up the thigh and you're wearing these, you have this carbon fiber protection here and then the, the Liat shorts that comes up and takes over. So there's hardly any spot on your body that's with any hard points like joints, elbows, or bony portions of your body that don't have this really high tech uh, padding on them and coverage is very, very important. The shorts also, in addition to the side hip protection and the thigh, the front of the thigh protection, there's also a pad for the small of the back right here, which takes up and kind of picks up from where the top section leaves off. So these are one of my favorite things. The Liat shorts, I think, should be on every ride. For the top, you're going to have basically a Liat, a pressure suit. Um, which is a soft, very breathable garment uh, that's going to have um, le several different levels of protection. What saved me uh, from breaking my collarbone or worse, I think, on the crash that I had uh, was this piece right here. This here has really good integrated shoulder pads. And when I, l I have a big bruise on the back of my shoulder where I landed right there, this shoulder pad sat sits right on here. And not only that, but I've got really good integrated elbow and forearm protection as well as bicep right here. Why that's important when you're riding, if you're riding with other dudes, especially guys with big thumpers, big four strokes, those things will throw croquet style rock size rocks at you and when th those will hit you in the chest and the arm and such and having that pad on that bicep is a, is a really nice option. As well as that, that neat technology and I can show you the padding it looks like this. This is the chest protector. This slides in the front and this is worn. This, this is it right here. This is worn like this. You know. So this is the material. It's very, very soft, very, very flexible and very breathable. You see all the holes in it so you don't get too hot. But this is important. Anything that comes flying at you is going to, the rocks uh, or if you go over the handlebars and you impact something this is going to protect your vital organs and very important to have. You're going to want to have that. So what's nice about these systems, everything's all in one. You're not having to have a separate chest protector. You don't have to have separate elbow pads, which tend to move around and, and it just don't, they don't work to, near as well as having an all one piece system. So I would, if I were you, I'd highly encourage you to go over to the Liat website it's L-E-A-T-T, -T, and they have a lot of different options. You can 
figure out what works for you, but have that protection. This, this right here, I'm convinced, this piece right here saved me from having a bad collarbone accident. Also, uh, you know, I wear, you want to have a good enduro jacket. Um, I wear, um, shout out to Ironheart. This is an Ironheart, it's denim, it's not a traditional, maybe traditional what you think of a riding jacket, but it's designed to be a riding jacket. A riding jacket is cut very differently than a normal coat because you are, are in a position like this. So what you typically need is you need arm articulators, so you need a little bit more of a, of a relaxed fit in the back or gussets, and you need longer arms because you, you were riding this position. If you go to a place and have like a proper motorcycle leathers made, I, I've had a couple jackets built from the Langlitz company in Portland where they still make hand make leather motorcycle jackets. They're some of the best you can buy, about $1,200 for a jacket. And when I, last time I was doing it, it was a year waiting list to get one. But nonetheless, when, when you go there and they fit you for it, they actually sit you on a motorcycle and they measure you that way, measure your arms and, and make it fit for you. A motorcycle jacket's also gonna be different in that it's close or it hugs the body very closely so it doesn't balloon up uh, when you're riding with air. And so you'll have, usually have a heavy duty uh, or close fitted long arms with zip sleeves so you don't get everything inflating on you. The Ironheart jacket I was wearing um, when I crashed into the gravel and with the full force, you know, a 20 foot flight in the air, full force at that speed landing on my head and shoulder, I landed right on this back shoulder right here with this jacket on with my armor underneath. And I remember the impact. I remember the whole thing so clearly. And to my surprise, you know, no damage, not, not a problem. This is heavy 21 ounce denim. So that's a really good protective piece of equipment um, that made a big difference uh, to me. So I'll, I'll go back and forth, you know, wear traditional moto enduro jackets like from Moscow Moto and such, but I've been wearing this one and, and big, big fan of that. So your riding jacket or an enduro jacket, just kind of know that. Helmet. This is a um, XD4 Ari, Araya, or Ari helmet. Um, Worked perfectly. Man, I have no gripes. I, I didn't, I, I thought I might have to replace it if it was going to be cracked or damaged, but I hit right here on the helmet. Um, and there's nothing more than just some scra scrapes, there's scratches over here. It must have rolled a little bit, um, you know, broke, broke off different things on the top, but uh, no, I don't see any reason to retire it. Ari helmets are the finest helmets you can buy, in my opinion. That's why the half of professional race car drivers, motorcycle racers use them. They have a very different philosophy from a lot of the other helmet manufacturers in that they're, some people don't like them because they look old fashioned. The theory is they make a round helmet and these are all made in Japan, handmade by the same family. And they're, if you wanna watch a really great documentary, go watch the a documentary where they did a factory tour of how these helmets are made the old way, all by hand, one at a time. It's absolutely a, a, amazing. Um, and beautiful helmet. So shout out to that. Make sure you have a, yourself a good helmet, um, of course. I would invest in an Ari helmet. All of this stuff breaking off, all of these, you know, for the vents and such, that's all by design. What Ari, what their philosophy is, is that if you are in an accident, and this has been proven through years of racing, the one thing that really messes dudes up, you may survive the accident, but as you're scooting along on the ground or, or 
you know, what, what have you, all of these helmets with all these fancy different things and these real pronounced jaws and vents and all that stuff, all of those are opportunities for the helmet to snag on something or to catch something and to crane your, rip your neck around and to break your neck. And the helmet can, can do that. What Ari does is they make a perfectly round helmet like an egg with all of this stuff is very light duty and it's made to shear off and to go away so that you're just left with a very smooth round helmet that's, that's not going to catch. Even the visors, all this stuff is just made to just be, just to go away so it never, it doesn't have enough strength to, to rack your neck and to, and to damage that. So, you know, I don't, you, it's hard to point to any one thing that helped me to walk away from that relatively unscathed, but I think it's how do, how do you take anything away? You know, it, it's, I'm very grateful, very grateful not to have a serious injury. Another thing uh, that I would consider is your clothing. Having abrasive resistant clothing, uh, clothing that fits over your padding so you have a good range of motions, that sort of thing is important. Talking about range of motion, one thing you want to look for, a good motorcycle jacket will be different than a regular jacket because of the way it's gusseted in the back of the shoulders. Do you see all that extra material in there? That's given you to have a, a really broad range of motion so that when you are in this position, do you see how tight the jacket gets right here? I don't have a lot of range of motion to be athletic and to ride the bike. Where a riding jacket is going to have, or it should, be gusseted here. So what that does is that opens up and gives you a lot of movement and a lot of, a lot of range of motion with your shoulder. And it's a quite a brilliant, brilliant design. As well as a really tight weave uh, that is going to stop uh, wind as well. So there's, there's a lot to, lot to consider about those things. Um, and then finally, your pack, um, you know, uh, there's kind of two schools of thought on this. The particular body armor that I wear has a really big spine protector in the back. Um, but what I find is if I'm going to be wearing a pack, which is pretty much always, I'm going to take that out because it just gets too bulky. What I have found, and, and this, I mean, you're going to have to make your own decision on this, but what I have found and a lot of guys have found is that this is essentially a really good back protector. You're going to have two or three liters of water in here, so that's going to give you a lot of cushion. You're going to have a lot of equipment and different things in there. But this being on your back, if you were to land on it, it's going to absorb a lot of things. That's why it's, it's really important when you're riding and when you're determining your riding gear and what you want to carry on your body, you don't want to have anything that's really hard on your body. Let's say like maybe even a holster or in a gun. If you were to fall upon on that, you know, that, that, a heavy item like that or like a really sharp tool or something in your pack can, can go through and put and it can break bones and you can have all sorts of problems. So I think it's important to be as, as clean and slick as possible and the less hard things you can have on your body, the better. That's why I put my tools and the hard items, I keep them on the bike. Find little hidey holes, ways that you can strap things on, not have them on your person. One, you're not having all that steel weight in here and you're not having anything that could hurt you harm you in an accident. Everything in here is relatively soft. It's going to be snacks. It's going to be, um, um, you know, there's emergency type of things, um, fire starters and stuff, but not, not real hard pointy things. But I think the pack is, is really important for that back protection as well. If you don't wear the pack, then your body armor will have a, an insert that goes in the back um, that will 
essentially do probably even a, a better job of that. But just my personal experience on, and uh, a word of, of warning um, to you all, beloved. Goodness. I, I, yeah, I've had, I've had P, PS, PTSD after this. You know, I've ridden two days after that. You know, every time I roll over a hill, you know, that, I play that back in my mind and play it over and over again. I, I rode my bike up there the next day and looked at the log and where I impacted and how far I flew, and I just couldn't believe that I walked away from that without having a serious injury. And it was the end of the day. On our way home, you let your guard down a little bit. You think, well, we just rolled through here. There shouldn't be a problem. And just, you know, just that quickly uh, could be a life-changing situation. Goodness. We have a super chat from our friend Dude Works who writes, yo, your words mean everything and Second Amendment rules. I agree. I agree. The Second Amendment rules. And that's what, that, that might, might be the only thing, only reason why we haven't completely been gobbled up and um, it, by socialism, communism is because oh, the American people have teeth, unlike the other country, uh, unlike all of the other countries that have been stripped of their teeth. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. And Dude Works, shout out to you, brother. Dude Works writes, "Yo, you're, or I wrote, <laughs> you wrote that." Brian M. Brian M. writes, "I had a flashback to getting hit by a Chevy Blazer when I was on a bike. Always replace your helmets if you go down. Shell might look fine, but chances are." It's broken inside, and that's 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 true. I broke. Um, yeah, the more I talk about this, the more I question whether or not I should be riding at this <laughs> these motorcycles at, at my age. I broke a helmet last year on my snow bike. Uh, same thing. It was a Climb F5 carbon. Um, came up on a snow bike, hit some ice over kind of a cornice, and lost it, and went down really hard and smacked my head real hard on the on that hard surface. Uh, rattled my cage a little bit, and I kept on going and ended up riding the rest of the day. But when I got back, inspected the helmet, the whole inside, all of the foam was all cracked. So that, that received all that. Even though it looked perfect in, in the back, um, it was cracked inside. So that's a very, very good point. I, will, I don't relish the idea of replacing a $700 helmet, but I will if I need to. After the live stream, I'll pull this all apart. I'll go inside and look and see. Um, I don't think so. I took the brunt of it. I remember very clearly, I remember the whole thing. I took the brunt of it really on the back of my shoulder. Uh, took it in, in the, and I came down on my head. But I'll, thank you for the reminder. I will check that out. And if need be, um, I'll replace it, even though I don't want to. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, Brian says, I had flashbacks to getting hit by a Chevy Blazer when I was on a bike. Always replace your helmets. If you go down, shell might look fine, but chances are it's broken inside. Yeah, that's a very good, very good reminder. Thank you, brother. I, I, I know that, um, but I, I almost didn't want to look inside there because I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to have to replace the thing. We have a super chat from Dude Works, $50. Goodness, thank you, brother. That is very, very generous of you. Dude Works writes, I don't know what to say, but take my money. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you, brother. We thank you for the support and it means a lot to me. Thank you. And wood tips for you. We have a super chat. He writes, what's the best piece of equipment you cannot live without? Now, I guess, what, what are we talking about? Are we talking about for dual sport, hard enduro? Are we talking about moto? We're just talking about general, just general stuff. Uh, if we're going to talk about moto, I, the thing, the first thing that comes to my mind, obviously, boots, helmet, and the knee braces. 
uh, th those are very, very important. I would say, you know, the funny thing is, so I've, of our group of the war band that rides together, I'm the only one that wears knee braces. Now, my friend Brian, he recently, he's on his fourth ride on knee braces. He's ridden with me for years, and he's always just wore traditional knee, knee guards, and he thought that he didn't need it. Read into it, he had a bad injury, not a bad injury, he had a scare a couple weeks ago where he went down in some rocks and then decided to get into the knee braces. And the thing that he told me, which is similar to my experience, is that the first time riding with him, he felt a little unsure and uncomfortable and how to grip the bike and such. But after two or three rides, he said, I can't imagine riding without them. If I were to, he goes, I, I, I got on my bike to do a road ride and I didn't put them on. I figured I didn't need them because I wasn't going to go hard. I just put my regular just knee pads on. And he said, I felt really vulnerable all day. I did not feel safe. I did not feel protected after experiencing what it's like to have proper knee braces. So that was, um, that's a common thing that you'll hear. My uh, ex-brother-in-law, who I used to ride with, this was, goodness, you know, 18, 19 years ago, he was an early adopter of knee braces, and he told me the same thing. Because I'd never heard of them or seen them before, and he was strapping them on, and he said, yeah, he goes, I would, I would rather, he goes, it's just like a helmet to me. I, I feel very vulnerable without them. So I would say, you know, knee braces, knee braces are pretty important. If we're just going to talk about general equipment, just a day-to-day -day day-to-day things that I really love and use a lot. You know, I can tell you, the first, I'll tell you the first thing that came to my mind. Usually if you just answer with the first thing that comes to mind, you can't go wrong. But I'll, I'll tell you probably my favorite piece of equipment for 2023 that I love, that if I lost it, I would immediately buy another one that all of my friends, I think everyone, almost every one of them, after seeing and using this, has went out and bought one. And it's the um, Milwaukee M12 air compressor. This little unit is life-changing. This little unit is a gem. It works so well and is so useful. It is, it's out of my toolbox and actually sits over by the door because it's used daily for pumping up everything. To be able to pump something up to, to over 100 PSI is nice. To be able just to set the range or where you want it to stop, uh, where you don't have to sit and babysit it, you're not back and forth with gauges. This is a wonderful tool. And if you're not in the Milwaukee system, I'm sorry, but it might be a good time to get into it. I love it. It's not super fast. You know, you can maybe do a little bit faster, but you got to drag out the air hose. You got to get an air chuck. You got to sit there and fiddle back and forth and too much air, not enough. And, you know, deflate, inflate, or this, you just screw it on there, punch in your number that you want. I love, love, love this tool. If you get the bigger batteries, you know, we'll have four, five bikes out here. Everyone's using it. I rarely see anyone changing the battery. I tell everyone the battery's over there. If it gets low, you just slap another one in there. But just one of these batteries seems to last um, a long time. But I love this tool. Uh, they're not super expensive, and it is life-changing. To be able to have air on demand wherever you go and not be tethered to an air hose or a compressor or a shop is hard to put a, hard to put a value on. But this is one of my top tools for 2023, uh, without a doubt. We have a new member, Mr. North Star. Shout out to you, brother. Welcome. Good to have you here. 
and a member message from Handy Mike. Handy Mike has been with us for 55 months. One of the OGs. Shout out to you, Handy Mike. Mike writes this. Since when do we use the hateful metric system here? Two liters, approximately 0.5 gallons. I know. I know. I, you guys are catching me slipping. Um, it's just, it seems to be taking over. Uh, the more, I was thinking the other, this morning actually, when I was putting together, or putting away my tools, my custom, how I typically operate is that, you know how when you have a project in the shop, it's astonishing sometimes how many things you need to drag out for just a simple project. <laughs> and that was, so what I'll typically do is, is at the end of the day, you know, before I go in for supper, I'll just kind of just leave everything where it's at and, and I don't put stuff away at night. I come in in the morning and do it. I come in every morning and do it. And this morning I was going through and putting my Allen wrenches and my sockets away and different things from, because I, when I crashed my 300 into that tree, uh, it tore up a whole bunch of stuff. I broke my phone. Uh, this is my iPhone 14 here. Broken screen, front and back. Broke my phone. Broke my phone mount. Um, I had um, like the super skookum Mako, I'll actually show you. Mako 360. I got all, all repair parts coming in for this. This, was, this is my, this is the mount I use on my 300, or did before I ruined it in the crash. Overbuilt CNC machine, the best quality. This is race proven. This is an overbuilt super skookum piece of equipment that should never break. But I hit so hard, that tree, that bike slid in that tree so hard that it actually bent these wings here. These are bent and cracked where it twisted and jammed that so hard. The handlebars were sideways. It bent the handlebars, you know, double wall pro tapers, uh, phone mount broken, uh, handlebars bent, etc., etc. I had to completely pull everything apart, rebuild the whole front end, and just put, I put back the old pieces that came OEM on the bike, you know, that I upgraded to and contacted um, Mako, and, and they're going to send some replacements uh, for that. So, yeah, it was, um, it was pretty scary. It was a pr pretty, pretty scary deal and not what I was expecting to happen. I expect, I take, I understand the risks and, and I ride accordingly. I don't ride over my head. I ride within my abilities. Um, but a situation like that, I, I, I was beyond thinking about danger. We were on our way home and the fact that a snag would have fallen like just randomly since I had, last time I had been there across the street, especially on a, on a gravel road with a lot of traffic was, um, it was quite a surprise, quite a surprise, goodness. We have, I, I'm sorry Mike about the metric system. The point I was making is I was, when I was putting my tools away this morning, uh, was, I go through my sockets and I'm putting back in the toolbox and my Allen wrenches and stuff and everything I work on now is always metric. Like I don't even hardly remember the last time that I've pulled out a non-metric tool. And there was a, some, some of the other guys were in here working in the shop and using tools as well. And there was a socket, and I'm like, it's not computing. I'm like, what is this doing here? And why would there be a half-inch socket out? Who uses, uh, who doesn't, I mean, I, I can't even remember the time, last time I've used an imperial socket. <laughs> so it's kind of the way of the world, man. Things are changing. Maybe it's because a lot of the things I'm working on now are foreign. Um, KTM, of course, Husqvarna, that's going to be Austrian, and the Japanese bikes are metric, and 
new vehicles are metric, you know, so that's just the way that we're going. Water containers now, they're no longer quarts, they're all, everything's liters, so I don't know, man. Maybe it's a sign of the end of times. So the poor America has to go back to the metric system. It's so confusing. Who could possibly understand it? I, I'm really at a disadvantage when it comes to the metric system. We have a super chat from Wood Tips for you. Shout out to you, brother. Thank you for that. Thank you for your generosity. Good to see Wood Tips back. He writes, if I had knee pads in my car accident, I could not be having, I, I might not have trouble walking around. Yeah, that's bad, man. I was in a car wreck. Oh, I'll tell you, it was, a, it was one of the worst things that ever happened to me. I was living in South Florida. And I spent a year down there, and that was all I could take. Pacific Northwest man cannot live in, in South Florida. It is a godforsaken, horrible place. And decided I had to get out. So I had, I had an apartment there and, you know, had just some things. I was kind of getting established. And so I wanted to move back to Oregon, rented a rider van or rental van, whatever, one of those rental companies. I remember when I went in and, and was signing the, uh, the paperwork for that, it asked me if I wanted to take out the insurance or, or pay a little bit extra for the insurance. Now, this was at a time before Mrs. W., this was at a time when I was moving around in life on my own steam uh, and didn't have, um, hmm, maybe didn't pay attention to uh, the, the details of uh, bills on time, uh, my credit, etc., as much as I had uh, maybe should have. Uh, definitely not squared away like I am now, thanks to my lovely wife, who is very much on top of all those things, thank goodness. But in that rare circumstance, the first time in my life, I did something responsible and I thought, well, it is a long drive from Florida all the way across the country to Oregon. Perhaps I should take out the insurance, and which I did. Thank goodness. So I was, I'm not sure where, maybe day two or so, maybe day one, not very far into my trip. And I'd stayed at this little flea-bitten hotel because it was cheap and I didn't have any money just to, because I was just trying to get through, just get it over with. Woke up not as early as I had hoped. I wanted to get an early start, and so I was rushing around a little bit. So I just immediately got up, grabbed my stuff, ran out, got in my rider vehicle. I'm trying to clean the sleep out of my eyes. You know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm getting a late start. I hate doing that. So I was a little bit anxious and wanting to get on the road. Well, the van that I rented was one of those big box vans, the big cube on it. They're pretty tall, right? And you know on those hotels how they have the, the covered area that... Uh, you can pull up underneath, you know, when you're checking in and you're, you don't get rained on, you, you know, the big flat, you know, covered area, they're all, it's pretty ubiquitous with hotels. Well, this was kind of a flea-bitten, nasty hotel, like a La Quinta or some horrible thing. Uh, and they had one of those, but it was about a foot lower than the top of my van. Well, I didn't, it's my own fault. Anyway, I, I, I just hit the gas and I was just going to tear through there and back out on the interstate. I'm running late. I'm in a hurry. Uh, I hit this thing, <laughs> I hit this thing so hard that it knocked it off of its big foundational columns. It was tweaked like this. The van, the rental van hit so hard on this thing that I went forward and bent the steering wheel a little bit and my knees hit the front of the dash and broke the plastic on the front. Just to give you an idea of how hard this impact was. How fast was I going? I don't, <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe 15? 
but from 15 to a near dead stop, that's a pretty hard impact. And it was, I mean, it, it shook the hotel so bad that it all emptied out, you know, all of the staff and everything on there. And like, oh, this is all I need. I had there was no money happened back then. Um, I had, I wasn't sure about the insurance and all that. And here I am just trying to get home. And now I've just completely destroyed the hotel front lobby. Uh, my truck is in really bad shape. The whole front is all crunched in. It's full of the contents, all this. It's a, it's a, it's a big old bummer, right? I didn't know what to do, you know, so I, 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 I the, the hotel guy comes out and he's like, oh, hell, you know, what, what, what's going on here? And uh, I, I just, I gave him my information. Uh, I don't know, I think he maybe photocopied my, uh, I don't know, whatever. Um, and, but 15 minutes, I was out of there. No big deal. Well, I surveyed the van and I figured, I, I think it's roadworthy. The whole front is all crushed in, but you know, so what? It's, it, it was summertime. I wasn't worried about water getting in too bad. Well, it wasn't too bad. Well, that was just the beginning of sorrows, I tell you. So as I got on the road, I noticed um, some noise coming from the top. And after about 100 miles or so, I pulled over and got out. And to my horror, realized that the whole top of that cube van was made out of it was a sheet of aluminum. And it had so damaged the top that, that cracks were starting to form and running back and the whole top is starting to separate and the sides are starting to go out and bow out like this because there's no structure left on the top to keep it all together. And I'm thinking, hmm, got a couple thousand miles to go across country. I've done a hundred miles and this thing is rapidly starting to de de deteriorate and I don't know that it's gonna make it. So I drove another hundred miles or so it's getting worse. I pulled over. Now the crack is halfway to the back. The sides are bowing out. It's getting really bad. Again, I've got no money. <laughs> you know, I, can't, I don't know what to do. I just, I got to get this, I got to get this van home to Oregon. I got to figure out a solution. Pulled into a Napa and uh, went and bought ratchet straps, some long, long ratchet straps. I maybe even had to double them up together and basically put bands of ratchet straps around this with duct tape. I even bought some rope. It was pretty shady looking. It was like, I was like the grapes of wrath, you know, going down the road with a, with this. Anyway, it stopped the splitting, right? Anyways, it stopped the sides from coming loose. I thought the whole thing was gonna just completely just disintegrate on the road at 60, 70 miles an hour. Well. I get another few hundred miles and, you know, I'm probably coming up into Wyoming or so. No, Idaho. I made it to Idaho and that's when the top cut loose and gave loose completely and I almost crashed. I was going down the freeway and that aluminum top on the back, this is a big van, you know, I mean, it's like the biggest one that they made. I don't know how long it was, you know, probably 20 feet, 20, 24 feet or so. The whole top, the aluminum sheet cracked and came loose and was still connected at the front and basically turned into this big flapping sail. And then I had to deal with all the way across the country, people pulling up alongside of me and pointing like I didn't know that my whole truck is about to come apart, you know, and then I need them to warn me. It got so annoying to me that I finally just took a piece of paper and tape and just taped up the window on the driver's side so I didn't have to look at people uh, pointing to me and trying to honk and get my attention that my van was coming apart. Well, in Idaho, the whole top let loose, and I had this huge, imagine like if you took like a, a, a bath towel in a high wind situation and was holding it up at one end, and it, you know, it'd be like a flag, you know, flapping. Well, it was doing this, well, that caused the, the van to behave very poorly 
on the interstate and it almost pulled, I thought it was gonna crash. It almost made, made the van tip over, it was super windy. I got it over to the side and I'm like, what am I gonna do now? This giant flap of aluminum, it's huge, like eight feet wide by 25 feet, you know, thick aluminum, all loose. Just what about, what do you do with that? I had some tin snips. I got up there and I took the tin snips and I cut the, the whole top of that off on the front and just threw it on the side of the road. And I figured, well, I don't mind littering with the aluminum because some tweaker would be by here shortly taking that aluminum to the scrap hall and, and at least I was sure someone would pick it up, but I left it there for the Idahoans to deal with. And I, on my way, I went, um, and it was a terrible, terrible trip. I got home, unloaded everything. The whole back, it was full of bugs and dead birds that, you know, who knows what had happened, but I basically had a convertible van. Fortunately, it didn't rain. I unloaded my stuff into my new place, and I very sheepishly returned it back to the U-Haul place. <laughs> I'll never forget the look on the dude's face when I rolled up in there with this completely destroyed brand. The box is completely destroyed. It had duct tape all over it and the ratchet straps and the whole top was missing. It was, ho it was horrible. The dude is like, oh, it's like, what have you done to the van? And oh, well, you know, and these things happen. I did take out the insurance and I gave him the insurance paperwork uh, and and. He's like, well, looks like that should cover it. <laughs> and uh, I left it there, and, and I never heard another word. Uh, and so uh, everything, everything was, was great. But had I had knee pads, <laughs> I wouldn't have broke the dad. I probably wouldn't have hurt my knees as bad as well. But that was my, that was my experience. <laughs> Thank you, Wood Tips, for you. Uh, you got that story if you wanted it or not. Mr. Evan Dixon, shout out to you, our local radio resident. And I have to tell you, Evan, that I sure enjoyed that live stream we did together. That was, um, that was super, super fun. Um, everyone really liked that. That was probably our best, the best live stream we ever did, primarily because uh, you were there carrying me through it. So shout out to Evan Dixon. Evan writes, the Proho radio kit was a smashing success. I appreciate the 150 plus who got on the pre-order. Now the fun part begins, building the kits, honored and grateful for that opportunity. Yes, I, I'm looking forward to hearing back from you guys, gentlemen, that get your ProHo kit, your three radio kit. The deadline was yesterday and 150 plus units. There's gonna be 150 ProHos are gonna have the fizz very shortly. So keep Evan and his family in your prayers. They have a lot of work ahead of them to fill all those orders. I have no doubt that they will honor their word and there's gonna be a lot of happy dudes very soon. So. Thank you, Evan. Thanks for the heads up uh, of what's going on. I sure appreciate that. And I'm actually anxious for you to get this done and those orders filled so that we can move on to our next pro hole um, project, whatever that may be. So we'll have to get our get together and figure out what that's going to be. If it, maybe we do a single radio kit, maybe we do a repeater. Um, there's a lot of different options. Evan is a huge asset to us in the community here because he has a very great skill set. He has got two skill sets. He, one, he knows radios very well, and he knows how to make the complicated uncomplicated. That's why his website is Radio Made Easy. So shout out to Evan. Thank you, brother. Let me jump in the comments here.
Did I miss a super chat? Oh, here we go. We have a super chat. We have a new member, Wood Tips for You. Shout out, shout out to you, brother. Thank you for joining us. And we have a super chat from our friend Clark Colper. Clark, shout out to you. Welcome. That's a very generous super chat. Clark writes this. I've been riding for close to 16 years. A few accidents here stateside, but the number of accidents I saw while in Vietnam blew my mind. I had to use my entire trauma kit I carry. I posted a couple of videos. Oh, goodness. Yeah, well, I, I have not... You've probably seen more than I have, but I've watched a lot of video over there. A lot of people over there, especially Southeast Asia and those countries, those poor countries, not everyone can afford a car, but most people can, can get a motorcycle, and so they're everywhere. And you know, the, you know how the traffic laws over there, the accidents are horrific. They ride multiple, two up, three up on bikes. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised. I've had to use, I'm surprised how many times I've had to use my trauma kit almost always in the vehicle. That's why if you are going to carry a trauma kit or an advanced first aid kit, you know, the question is, do I keep it at home or do I keep it in the truck? You're more likely to need it in the truck. But again, your, your primary focus is going to be on your, your home, your family. So if you're away and your wife needs a tourniquet, but you've got it in your truck, that could be a problem. So just be careful with that. If you're disciplined enough to have a system where you can take your, the gear that you need, where you can only have one set, and be regularly regular at keeping it, taking it in your truck, taking it back to the house, you know, more t power to you. I, I can't do that. Life's too busy. There's too much going on. So I think it's pretty important that the ultimate goal would be to have two kits. You're going to want to have a good trauma kit at home that's going to be in an area where everyone knows where it's at, a common area. I'll tell you, someone that's been a, a, a fire medic and that has had a lot of patient contacts, I have um, had patients die in front of me that I was working on. I have responded to hundreds of car accidents, fatalities. I get it. You know, I've been around it. I, I'm familiar with it. The first 10 minutes is, is the most important. First 10 minutes, what you do and how you react in the first 10 minutes of a bad accident make, can make the difference between life or death. And as Proho, as the priest of your household, you have a, pro, you have a mandate by God to, to be the protector. And that means in many different ways, not only the spiritual element of it, but also the physical side of it. So in a situation where everything goes bad really quickly, and it is very scary, especially when your kids are involved or a loved one. Trampoline accident, uh, who knows what, you know, bleed, uh, something, a major bleed, a broken, you know, to, to, have, to not have yourself squared away and not to kind of have a plan and know where your stuff is, is a really horrible experience, especially if, you're, if you have to look for something. If you've got a child bleeding out and you can't remember where you put your first aid kit, or you left it in your truck and your wife is gone with your truck and she's at the grocery store, you'll never forgive yourself. So this is important, beloved, to make sure you just think about these things and have a plan and have everyone on board so that when you say it, this has been, there's been many times that little family emergencies that could have turned into big ones were averted because I had placed the medical supplies in a particular area and everyone knew about it. Jack, get the big first aid kit, get it now. He's not looking for it, he's not asking questions, he's not taking my attention away from what I'm trying to do, which is to save life or whatever it is you need to be doing. 
He knows. My wife knows. I know it's always there. So something to consider. Do it now before you need it. Yeah. Thank you, Clark. Yeah. That's an important piece of kit to have is those trauma kits. Your go-to for that, if you haven't invested one, the two, my two favorite companies, the two best, I think are Refuge Medical, good people over there, Family USA Business, lots of experience, lots of really good resource source stuff, the best money can buy, Refuge Medical. My friends over there have a lot of different options from personal IFAC to um, whole family kits, expedition kits. Um, you can buy there and be done. Know that you're going to get good stuff. And my friend David Pruitt over at AMP, AMP3 Medical. Go look at both those sites, but um, something that you need to have. That and your fire extinguisher. Make sure you get one of those in the house as well, at least one. We have a member chat from our brother in Christ, Hanky Mountain Garage. Shout out to you, brother. Welcome. Thank you for your generosity. Hanky says, I've got my floor supported, two six by sixes and screw jacks on blocks. Have to do insulation, finish plumbing, close to the back porch, electrical and plumbing. Yeah, Hanky Mountain, if I remember right, he was asking questions. He had a big project in front of him. He wanted to level his house. He was having some floor sagging or his house sagging a little bit. He was asking about that. We talked about it, and you're doing it right. Yep, the big screw jacks, screw jacks on blocks, some big six-by-sixes, Put some, pour some pier pads or get some pre-poured ones if you can get them down there, um, and that's really all you need to do. Make sure... One thing that guys don't do when you're supporting your floor, if you go under, if you got an old house and you've got floor joists, the floor joists are going to be 2x6, 2x8, 2x12, depending on the house, when it was constructed, but they're going to be on end, 16-inch, 24-inch on center. Those are what give the floor the strength. Now, when you, when you have a board that has a long span, the bigger the span, the more flex or sponginess you'll get in the floor. In some of the older houses, they didn't do... They didn't support the floor joists properly, so either they didn't put the, the, the posts in to support that, or they put the posts in, they didn't secure them properly, and they have fallen out. They might be even laying on the ground down there. It's common to go down there and see where they've fallen, and they're just laying on the ground not doing any good. One thing that can be really dangerous, and especially if you live in areas like we do in the ring of fire or earthquakes or volcanoes or that seismic things are a big threat, that you want to strap those posts on. So when you get down there and you get everything leveled and cut to length and everything secure and strong, I would make sure you strap those on with some plumber's tape. So wrap, take the plumber's tape, wrap it around, or just whatever, you'll figure it out, but just make sure that that's held together so that if you get in a situation where your house is moving around because of an earthquake, seismic activities, those things that they're not secured, like old houses, they'll just fall over. And you have now you, you're you're weakening your house, and you could have more damage that you would that you normally would able able to not to survive it. Um, so strap those things on there uh, so that they don't fall out and weaken your home. So it's just a small thing; doesn't cost a lot of money, uh, but something you can do just to give yourself a little bit extra insurance when you're down there. But shout out to Hanky Mountain Garage. He's truly pro-ho to go down there and, and to fight through the spiders and the dead rats and the, and the disgusting nature of whatever's in a crawl space and, uh, and, and get it done and uh, do it himself. I, I, uh, I admire that. So good luck. Stay safe down there. Where 
a dust mask too. If you've got mice or vermin down there, uh, you see mouse droppings and such, you don't want to breathe that stuff in. It's really dangerous. It's really bad for you. So cover yourself, protect your health, get yourself an N95 mask whenever you're down in a situation like that, down in the basement or a dirty crawl space, uh, mold, um, spores, all sorts of bad stuff down there. Make sure you wear your dust mask. Dust mask and a headlamp. That's my MO for going down in the crawl space. Mr. Ryan Barnes, shout out to you, Ryan. Appreciate that. Thank you for your support. Ryan says, you have to clip that U-Haul story. I spit up my Drake Lappy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, a, that, was a bad, that was a bad one. That was definitely, definitely a bad. That was a long trip, man, in that van. Because I was, you know, it's stressful driving across country like that. And it's when you're driving a big truck that's got a bunch of stuff in it. And when you have problems like that, that was ex an exhausting trip. Exhausting. The most exhausting part, though, was the constant people pulling up and honking and pointing. Like, I, I, was, so, I was so beyond annoyed. So beyond annoyed. Like, like, they would actually think that I didn't realize what was, go what was going, going on. I know they were just trying to help, but as I said, I had to cover the window. I just I couldn't bear it. Just couldn't bear it. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll clip that story. We have a super chat from Shooter Hemming. And member 18 months, shout out to you, or not a super chat, we have a comment. Shooter writes this, what is your opinion on displaying a cross or Christian art in the home? Does that fall under graven images? That's a very good question. I have to separate my own personal bias uh, from this. So what he's talking about, is it okay uh, to go forward wearing the Christian cross uh, or putting these things up in, in the house? There's a lot of warnings uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, God was very hard on the, on the Israelites in the early days and, and really got after them about graven Im images, making idols, um, carving uh, idols out of trees, the, the, the groves and such. And, and the reason why there's so much emphasis on this is because of the time, what was taking place in the time. Now we have to realize that uh, you, when you're reading the 66, when you're reading the good book, there's not a lot of real estate. We, we, got, we have to cover six, 7,000 years of history in, in re, a relatively small bit of um, paper. So there's a lot of things that are left out. Uh, the context. So you can see God trying to deal with the people, trying to keep a, peop a people that is pure, uh, that is following the statutes, following the commandments of God in a very cruel and evil world. What was completely different about the children of Israel uh, back in those days is that they had been given the commandments. They had been given God's law and how we should live and how, how they should conduct themselves where all around them were the heathen nations. And the heathen nations were very savage. They, they participated in um, child sacrifice. Um, a lot of the, the temples that they erected for uh, the gods, for Baal and Ashtoreth and the goddess of fertility and such, it was very popular and it was very easy to get folks uh, to the religious services because of the temple prostitutes. The temple prostitutes or the priestesses, this was... Um, a form of, um, of their religion. Uh, you could show up, uh, you could give your offering uh, to your gods, and you could, um, 
enjoy some extracurricular activities with the temple prostitutes. This was something that was commonly done as well as the worship of idols uh, made from man's own hands, of animals, of owls, of, um, you know, we, we, we get the whole, whole, th whole thing, right? So here God has this small group of people that he's trying to, to, to keep pure so that they can produce a Messiah that can ultimately save everyone in this really toxic environment. It was very difficult, I would imagine, uh, and very tempting if you were a young man back in those days and you were born in as a children of into the 12 tribes and you had been handed the oracles of God through the priesthood and there was a way to conduct yourself and that form of worship that God had ordained was very different than what your neighbors were doing and i could imagine that the uh <laughs> that the, you would look upon the hill and you would see your neighbors that were practicing their form of of worship with the temple prostitutes that that would be somewhat um well, it could be somewhat enticing, right, when you contrasted that with your, with your own. So God was really hard on those people and really wanted to make a distinction between the true religion and that of the heathen or the pagan. So it, it was something that he didn't want them getting involved with um, because, well, various different reasons. So w that's why you see a lot of the, uh, in the old language, what, they, they discourage that. Now... Today, how does that, does, does that mean that if I um, put a cross, a crucifix uh, in my house, that I would be falling under uh, the teachings of the Old Testament where we should not be making things graven images, that we should not be worshiping or bowing down to things? Is it the same thing as them back in the day? I don't think so. You know, this argument is always made. It always comes around during Christmas time. And... You know, there might be something to it. I, I, I'm, I'm, my opinion and my understanding of this is evolving um, current, currently, so I don't know, I'm not going to say that I know everything about it. But what happens is if you, if you put up a Christmas tree, you'll get guys uh, that will say, you know, you shouldn't put up the Christmas tree because it's spoken of in the Old Testament that we should not be doing this, that we should not be decorating trees, uh, putting ornaments on things, that this is um, at an abhorrent thing, something that, that Christians should not do. I get that and I agree with that, but what's different is, is I don't know that anyone is actually bowing down to the Christmas tree or looking at the Christmas tree as um, an idol or a god or something that they would pray to. I don't know that of anyone that's doing that. So the spirit of it is a little bit different and I think it's somewhat disingenuous to apply graven images or carving an image of your God into a tree and then bowing down and worshiping. I, I, I don't know that we're on the, the same ground right there. Same thing with the cross. Um, if you're putting a crucifix on the wall above your bed, you know, is that something that is uh, going against um, the, te the tenets of, of, of the faith? I would say it depends. Now, Protestant. Proho is not Catholic. Proho is, is Protestant, you know, and we, we are very different than Catholic. Someone who is looking on the outside may not be able to distinguish or don't, think, think, don't understand that there's a difference between a Protestant and a Catholic. We're very different. Uh, Protestants are, are, are not at all, uh, we, do, we, we, we cannot coexist. We, we don't have the same beliefs. And one of the beliefs that the Catholics hold that Protestants do not 
is the collecting of relics, um, icons, um, the bones of old saints, um, praying to Mary. You see all the statues and the, and the iconography and, and such. That is straight paganism. Um, and that is not something that should not be done for the Protestant believer. Now, shout out to our Catholic friends. I, this is not, I'm not, when I get, go hard on the Catholics, it's got nothing to do with the individual people. Some of my best friends, some of the best people that I've known have been Catholics and raised in the Catholic Church. What I'm talking about is the system. The system is corrupt in many ways. I'm not disparaging the individual Catholics. You know, we're all learning. We're all on different rungs of the ladder on our way to the kingdom. And I'm not one to be looking at someone that's, that hasn't come to this realization yet. Doesn't mean that they won't. But I'm just telling you that I don't, I think that that's a problem. You should not be praying to Mary. You should not be praying to um, any sort of a statue. You should not be bowing down or lighting candles or having this the centerpiece of your faith. We have one high priest, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. The difference between the Catholic and the Protestant is the Catholics have put a mediator between you and God. You cannot go directly to God with your problems, with your confessions, or with your wants or your prayers. You need a mediator. Is, is that you go to the Catholic priest, and the Catholic priest goes to God, allegedly, on your behalf. This is not biblical, and this is um, heresy, in my opinion. Protestants don't need an intermediary. We go directly to the source. So when you have someone intervening or getting in the way of you and God, that is a problem, and that was set up specifically to prevent people from coming to the faith, in my opinion. So it's a complicated question to ask it. I'm just pointing out a, or a, the, the icon things. It's a, it's a complicated question, but I, I need to kind of give some, some background on this. What about crosses? You see, it's really popular now, especially with Western women, to seeing, seeing them wear crosses. And I'm always surprised to see how many of these 304s that are out there in these streets that are wearing these crosses while doing TikTok videos or shorts talking about their high body counts and how promiscuous they are, but they very boldly and very callously wear this cross. I think that that is a terrible uh, thing to do, and it mocks true faith and it demeans uh, the religion, and it, it almost, it, it almost like, there's like a spirit of rebellion that they're doing it just intentionally, like just as a big F you uh, to God uh, and to true people of faith. So for that reason alone, because it's so ubiquitous to see, the, see these hoes wearing crosses, I see it all the time, that if you are someone that is a person of faith, a virtuous woman, I don't know I, I probably wouldn't do it because I don't want to be lumped in with all of that. The other thing with jewelry, there's a huge... People fall on both sides of jewelry. Um, and this could include crosses and, and such. Is, is, that, is that Christian? Is that something that we should do? I guess it depends. You know, if you want to discreetly wear um, an emblem, a medallion or something, let's say you want to wear a cross and, and be discreet, if that's a personal thing that you have decided is important to you, a reminder to you, then there's no one to tell you otherwise. But if you're going to be go out there and, and wearing this overtly um, and professing to the whole world that here I am, I'm a Christian, obviously I've got the cross around my neck, you better be living your life better and cleaner than the next person. Because if you are wearing that cross, that symbol of the Christian faith, and that you are lying, 
you are being dishonorable, you are not keeping your word, uh, you are using inappropriate language or anything that is unbecoming of a, of a person of faith, then you, the, then you need to take that off. Uh, that's just not something you should wear. But how I default on it and to be on the safe ground, beloved, I would abstain from all of it. All of that imagery, um, the relics, the statues, the crucifixes, the crosses, that is all from our Catholic friends. It all comes straight out of paganism, and it was never in the original, uh, in, the, in the early church, and was never advocated. God has always been about purity and simplicity, and not um, the overt showing of riches or wealth or flamboyance, um, and I, just the general spirit of it and just how God has interacted with men and what has been required of him, it just doesn't sit well. And I think adorning yourself with, with or, ornamentation like that to get attention um, or praying to idols or making that a centerpiece in your faith, I think that's going down the wrong road. But again, that's just my opinion. Let every man be convinced in his own mind. We have a super chat. Oh, sorry, shoot, Shooter Hemming. That was not a super chat. That was a member message. We have a super chat from our friend, Mr. Dr. Prepper. Shout out to you, Dr. Prepper, who writes, I love the mental image. Look like the grapes of wrath. Good day, sir. Speaking of medical supplies, fingers help on the way. F finger help on the way today. Yeah, my finger's healing up. Oh, goodness, I cut my finger bad on that Benchmade 9400. The Benchmade 9400 and I are um, temporarily separated. Um, will we be reunited? Uh, I do not know. But one thing I do know is that if, if, and that is a big if, if we ever are reunited and I'm to carry that knife again, uh, I will train myself to always, always, always engage the safety. It's not just me that nearly cut my finger off with that knife. There were many of you that contacted me privately and said I had the same thing happen. It opened in my pocket. I put my hand in, and it darn near cut my hand off. So be careful. Dr. Prepper has sent me some medical supplies um, that should be, I think, maybe arrived today. The UPS guy just dropped something off. So maybe I'll share that with you guys tomorrow. But thank you, brother. I appreciate that. You can't have too many medical supplies in here. I have, this week alone have broke in between myself and the sweet loaf, have broken into my home medical kit four times this week inside of seven days to deal with a couple of major bleeders. Um, and sweet loaf is, um, well, she's a bit of a tomboy, so we have daily accidents. Speaking of, you know, I've got the sweet loaf. I got, she's got her first moto. Would you guys like to see the sweet loaf's first? I got her a KTM. You want to see it? You're going to like this. Hold on. She's five and a half now, and she wants nothing more to go riding with her papa. We ride together in the evening. She rides on, on the, sometimes the front or sometimes the back. But if you've got little kids, I want to show you something that's super cool. Actually, the company that, that invented this is, I believe, is owned by Harley Davidson, and they license these out to lots of different companies. This is a this is an basically an electric strider. It has, um, the striders are really popular. If you have little kids and you want to teach them to ride bikes, the striders are good because it's basically a small bike that doesn't have a pedal. 
Uh, and what they can do is they can move themselves along with their feet. Uh, they feel confident on them. And then if they get scared, they can just put their feet down. They don't have to, and then they'll learn to balance and they'll learn to coast. So we started the Sweet Loaf on a regular Strider that we just bought secondhand. Um, and she's been on that. Once she mastered that, then I wanted her to get into this. Now this is electric. This has a uh, drive motor in the center. It's got 16 inch wheels and these come in all different sizes. So if you have for a five or six year old, the 16 inch is a good size but then they go on up for bigger kids as well. But it's got a, um, an electric motor. It's got a, a, a drive chain to the rear wheel, just like a motorcycle would. And then the battery goes up front here. You see that? So just kind of like a drill battery. The battery is proprietary, but I have been told that there are conversions if you have, or in the DeWalt system or what, whatever, that you can get an adapter plate and you can run batteries that you already own which is kind of nice and you don't have to buy the expensive ones. But very well made, uh, a nice piece of kit. But what you have is you've also got a traditional throttle on there. So this throttle is just like a motorcycle where you roll it back and it has a rear brake on the hand right there. So just one brake. So very simple controls, easy to use. There's three throttle settings. There's, there's red, yellow, and green and I go through the menus and it's just complicated enough where it's, a child is not going to inadvertently boost it up without you doing it. You know, you kind of have control over that. So when you turn it on, you, you can set it to, I have it set on the red, which is the lowest setting. This is not gonna go too fast for the kids so they can get comfortable with it. They can roll the throttle on, go along at, you know, like maybe a brisk walking speed. And then when they get more confident, you can move it on up and they can go faster and faster up into the green, which goes along pretty good. It go actually goes quite good. So this is the, this one was branded KTM, which is kind of cool. Uh, and we, we've been talking about this for about a year now. Like I kept telling her, once you master that Strider, then I'll get you your first dirt bike. It's not really a dirt bike, but she, she doesn't know better. Uh, so looking forward to that. I don't know why, I, I don't know what started that conversation. <laughs> yeah, it was Dr. Prepper, yeah, the image of the Grapes of Wrath. So if you're lost on that, the Grapes of Wrath was a book written by, and this, this book uh, is um, definitely on the top 100 Proho reading list. You should read the classics. Uh, the, about the best, if, if you are like me and were subjected to the horrible American education, public education system and didn't get a very good education and find yourself lacking, if you would like to have, give yourself the best classical education that you could, it's, it's hard to beat this, um, is to go read the top 100 greatest classics. Now, if you go online, there's going to be two lists. You're going to see one for the UK and you're going to see one for the, for the U.S. I like the U.K. books better. A lot of them are the same. You know, they're cross-referencing. But it's going to list the top 100 classics that everyone should read. We're going to have Tolstoy in there. We're going to have um, uh, Hemingway in there. We're going to have, uh, uh, my mind goes blank here, The Three Musketeers. We're going to have Anna Karenina. You know, all of the great classic literature, you know, some of the best literature that's ever been produced that, that we all know of, like we hear, like you've heard about War and Peace. Have you read it? You know, you should read these things. 
reading these hundred books, when you come out of the back end, and, and by reading them, what I did is I mostly audiobooks. I don't have time to sit down, nor the desire to read old school. I'm busy, but I can listen to audiobooks in the car and such. So that's what I did. When I'm working in the shop, I listen to them all the time. Uh, it will give you a tremendous education. Reading those top 100 books, you'll have a, a really good snapshot of, of history, cultures. Uh, there's just so much. It just, it's hard to even quantify it. It just makes your life so much richer. And if, when you're in the presence of people that are learned, you're not going to look like a fool. You're not going to be not getting the references or understanding what they're talking about. Like Dr. Prepper, right? Obviously a learned man. He knows the story of the Grapes of Wrath. The Grapes of Wrath, the point I'm making is that if I make a reference or someone makes a reference to this, I look like the Grapes of Wrath. You know, what does that mean? The Grapes of Wrath covered the migration of the Okies, of, of, of the people from Oklahoma, of their migration west during the Depression and the Dust Bowl when they couldn't no longer farm. And it was, a lot of people there were rural and very poor. And what they had to do, they had to load up all their possessions, everything that they owned, on whatever vehicle that they owned and go west. And it was common to see a truck that looked like, like you see in Africa, where it's just piled high with tables and chairs and farm implements and tools and, and steamer trunks and all of that, because that's all they had, making their way west with everything that they owned for the family. And that's the Grape of Wrath, Grapes of Wrath reference um, that I'm making. And the book was written by Steinbeck, a fictional story of, of uh, that experience. I asked my grandfather, no, my grandfather participated in that. My family got their land from the Oklahoma land rush and improved it and lived there generations. And in the 30s, during the Dust Bowl and the Depression, the Great Depression, they were unable to make a living there, and they had to do that. They had two vehicles. They had a Model T Ford pickup, and they had a Model A sedan. And they had to put everything that the family owned, kids, women, everything, on those two vehicles and go up over the Rockies and ultimately landed over in Idaho. Granddad told me that the truck was so heavy, that Model T Ford, that it was not able, didn't have the power uh, to get up over some of the steeper passes over the Rockies in Colorado. Now, this is before the interstate system. So this was most likely dirt and gravel switchbacks. You can only imagine it must have been a difficult, very difficult journey, especially on those old vehicles. He told me that the boys, there were three boys, he had two brothers, the boys had to actually get out and push, uh, physically, manually, push the back of the truck while my great-great-granddad drove to get those vehicles over the steeper sections. Thank you, Dr. Prepper. And Back Creek Homestead, good to see you. Thank you. No comment, just support. Thank you. I appreciate that, brother. Good to see you here. And I'm not a robot. I'm not a robot writes this. Doesn't the skull and bones on the helmet bother you? Uh, no, it doesn't. I put it on there. I put it on there. It is a, um, it's an inside insignia for the war band that I, 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 can't, I can't get into details. If you meet me, I'll tell you. We have a super chat from Robot Combat, Robot from Paint. Excuse me, I am not a smart man. We have a super chat from Paint who writes, Robot Combat Future, more content coming. Yeah, 
those uh, general dynamics robot dogs are showing up everywhere, aren't they? People, people told me, oh, you're paranoid. They're never going to put weapons on those things. They're never going to turn those things against us. Uh, wake up, man. They're already doing it. It's already been done. Yeah, I will, uh, I think the, what, what he's getting at is asking if I will do any more videos on uh, how, to, um, how to defeat these robots if you're faced with one in a difficult, in, in, the, in the future struggle. And I'm always, uh, I'm always looking for those sites, sort of things, and, and I, I, I will upload some more of that stuff. I have, to, I have to sprinkle it out. I have to meter it out slowly. If I go out too much too soon, I probably get my channel whacked. So I think I can sneak in a little every once in a while. Thank you, brother. We have a super chat from my1252152, which is my second favorite YouTube name. My1252152 and double Loctite member writes thus, Been there too many times. Seem, seems to happen when broke. Like inviting a new guy hunting. Think hard before adventuring on a shoestring. It's a good way to get peed on while sleeping in a tent by some fool. <laughs> yeah. That's someone that, that has personal experience in the matter. Uh, and I, everything he says is 100% true. <laughs> That's true, man. That's true. Yeah, you'll know your man. You'll know you'll know what your your friend or girlfriend or whoever it is coworkers really like if you take them hunting uh, in a and living in a tent for a week. I assure you, um, whether or not you choose to maintain that friendship after hunting uh, with them, uh, well, that remains to be seen. <laughs> I just saw. <laughs> I, I just Dan Baker's talk. Dan Baker just made a comment of a funny. I'll, I'll close with this. I got to share a funny story. I've shared this with you guys before, but it's it's so good. A wildland fire story. So, my family coming out of Oklahoma, we, we've got a lot of American Indian, obviously Native American Indian. You know the cheekbones, uh, no body hair. Uh, and the, the nose, all of that, you know, and, the, and just the dark complexion. I, my hair is black. It's not brown. It's completely black. So my, on my granddad's side, you know, my great aunts and stuff, they look like, they look like full-blood Indian. You know, I don't know, you know, we're not affiliated. I don't know the history and all of that, but it was commonly understood that coming out of Oklahoma, um, in, we have Native American, pr pretty prominent Native American in our, in our family. My great-granddad looked like he could have been a chief. Uh, like, if you would have put a war bonnet on him, you wouldn't have known that he wasn't full-blood Indian. When I'm on, when, oh, when I've been on wildland fires, I've told you guys, it's always hot and sunny, and I get really, really suntan, really dark, much darker than I am right now. And I often get confused to be Native American. And I always get confused by Native Americans themselves. There's a lot of American Indians that work on wildland fires because the government, you know, is always giving them, trying to give them a handout, help, hand up, help, helping them out. So they give them, uh, a lot of the tribes run fire crews. So it's really common to see all Indian crews on fires. Well, you, when you're in a fire camp, it's a pretty small group. You start meeting and talking with guys, and you're there for two weeks. And always at, at lunchtime, people come up to me, and they're like, it, Indians will come up to me like, oh, so um, so uh, you look familiar. What, what tribe are you from? Like, 
giving me the inside language, you know, how they talk, you know, how they have the kind of the pidgin English. And what the one guy one time was like, hey, he's like, man, he goes, you look familiar. You look like my brother. Are you from the Winnebago tribe? And he's telling me all about the Winnebago tribe. I'm like, no, no, I'm not any no tribe. Oh, I don't know, man. You you look like you could be my brother. You know, he's like, this always happens. So we're on a fire a couple years ago. <laughs> and I'm working with a guy I've never worked with before. Really dark, really tan and dirty. You know, I'm, I must be looking like a like a, a Native American. You know, he's just assuming that I'm that I'm I'm Indian. So it's lunchtime, and they bring us a truck pulls up, and, and it was a, we were on initial attack, and they bring out our bag lunches, right, brown bag lunches, and so they come out and lunches for everybody. So we all sit down, and we're big sandwiches, and I pull my sandwich out, and the guy that's working next to me, I didn't know him before, he pulls his sandwich out, and he's immediately he's upset. He's like, oh, man, he's like, oh, I, I, it's got all this stuff on it. He was, he was a finicky eater. It had, like, mayonnaise and pickles and all this stuff on there, and he, he was just so upset. He was hungry, but they brought in the sandwich. It had all the stuff on it, not the way he liked it. It was a roast beef sandwich, but it had too much stuff on it. He's like, oh, I can't eat that. So he's trying to pick around it, puts the sandwich back in the bag, and, and he's eating the chips and the cookies, you know, and unsatisfied with this. And So I'm looking at my sandwich, or looking at his sandwich. What I, what, he, what I realized is there was big old thick roast beef, man, like an inch of it. They did not spare on the roast beef. It was like a steak on that thing, just really nice, a nice sandwich. And I was hungry too, and I looked at that and I thought, well, I'll just take all that stuff off. So I asked him, I said, hey, you mind if I have that, if you're not going to eat that sandwich, I'll, I'll eat that. He's like, ah, you can have it, I don't want all that stuff. So I took his sandwich and, and I took, uh, he's, he's watching this as, I, as it takes place, and I, and I take the top off, and I don't like all that stuff either. I want my sandwich plain as well. I want meat and cheese, maybe some butter. I took all that stuff off the top, and just put it back in the bag, and there I was left with that big old succulent roast beef. I took his sandwich, took all that stuff off the top, and I plopped the two bottoms together. And here I had a very enviable, like a, almost a double roast beef sandwich that I'm building, right, without all that stuff on it. Well, when he looked at that, he was kicking himself why he didn't figure that out and do that himself. And he's looking at me about to enjoy my big double roast beef sandwich while he's eating, you know, cookie Oreos and just the garbage. <laughs> it's, so I'm, I'm building this sandwich, and he very reluctantly is like, oh, he's like, man, I, you know, I don't remember what he said, but something like, I, I should have thought about that. He, he goes, he's like, something to the effect of, oh, hey, man, I hate to do this, but would you mind if I have that sandwich back? I didn't think about taking all that stuff off, you know? And I'm, I must not have put them together. You know? I, I had them in my hand. I wrote, and I'll never forget, I looked at him, and I'm like, Nah, you can have it. And I handed it back to him. He goes, I said, um, my people, something to the effect of my, my people were used to this. And he, he took it and, and he's like thinking about what I said. And he's looking at me and he's looking at the sandwich and what I just said. And he thinks I'm an Indian. And he, it, like this horror came over his face. And he said, are you calling me an Indian giver? <laughs> you gave something and then you took it back away? <laughs> It was, it, it was so funny. You had to be there, gentlemen. You had to be there, but it was absolutely the best thing to ever happen. So we had a good laugh over it, uh, and we both had our roast beef sandwich. <laughs> Fabulous. Ah, it's the little things in life. Thank you, my 12521252 and double Loctite member. I sure appreciate that.
All right. Was I going to close with that? <laughs> Adam and stuff, you saw the punchline coming. Yeah, it was perfect. It was perfect. I should, I should learn to tell it better, but it was great. It was great. <laughs> All right, beloved. Well, let, let's shut it down. I got a lot of stuff going on. I got to get back over there to my irrigation, uh, get some going on that. There's just a bunch of stuff breaking loose. Um, yeah, that's it. Don't need to be, belabor the point. Thank you, beloved, for spending your time. Thank you for hanging out with me and all the generous super chats. Our friend Overton and the middlemen for all of your support. I, uh, I really do appreciate the good comments, good content, or good comments, uh, good dialogue. Also, Dr. Prepper and some of the others have asked if we could do maybe one day a week a dedicated like study of the good book uh, or a particular topic. I, I like to really hone in on topics. I would like you guys this week, if there's a particular thorny or difficult thing in the good book that you've struggled with that portrays God in, in, an, in maybe an unfavorable light in your opinion, makes him look arbitrary, unreasonable, severe, something that you've wrestled with that you just can't get your head around. There is no topic off the table. I, unlike a lot of my learned uh, contemporaries, I guess, or um, certified pastors and men of the cloth or leaders of churches, they shy away from a lot of topics that are uncomfortable that they don't have answers for. Not all, but many. We're not about that here. I am confident, 100%, that we can get into something and find out, I, don't, I do not believe there's anything when put in its proper context in the 66 books that I've come across that I, could, I would be ashamed of or that I, would, that I felt like that I would be, that anyone could use as a gotcha or, or use it um, to, to tear down or to diminish or to discourage me from my faith because I don't think it exists. But for a lot of people, they've come across things and I have myself come across things that were very confusing that did not appear at face value to portray God in a very good light, made him look angry, severe, untrustworthy. Some people have not have walked away and have given up on the faith because of these things. These have been impediments or roadblocks to them. I think context is important. The good book tells us when studying, when studying it, line upon line, precept upon precept, you need to usually the answers that you seek can be found in the book in this proper context. So what I would like you guys to do, whatever that may be, and, and again, I'm not, uh, I'm not any sort of a theologian or professional here, and I probably couldn't provide a proper answer or an adequate answer off the top of my head a lot of these discussions, but I do know how to research, and I do know how to look it up and look into it. Um, so if you have something like this, again, I told you guys, I'm not gonna, I don't have the time to go research this and come up with these topics. I would like this to come from you from the beloved. I want this to be real stuff. Bring them to the middlemen. Um, put comments in there with a question. If the middlemen would be so kind to maybe kind of curate or keep a couple of the better ones or something that's a common theme, get those to me and I will spend the 24 hours in deep research. I'll get into it and prayerfully research and study and come away with the best answer that I can find. And there may not be answers for some things. You know, there, not everything we can't, we can understand. You know, the ways of God are incredible. We can't even understand how gravity works. We're not going to understand, we're not going to unravel the universe on a live stream. 
So let's have realistic expectations. And we have to also understand that it might not be time for us to know these things, um, that we need to be patient. Um, but it's important. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We learn from one another. So what I would like you to do, Boho, this week is that if you have a sincere concern or something that you've struggled with that would might be a benefit to me, to you, and the, and the community here of us discussing it and getting to the bottom of it, not my think so, not the opinion think so of a faulty man, but let God's word interpret God's word, then we're on safe ground. Get these concerns, get them to the middlemen, and they can get them to me. Um, and if something intrigues me or I think that this would be beneficial to the group, I will do the study and we will lead with that, that we will set aside a live stream. Maybe that's on Fridays, whatever. We'll figure something out where we tackle this and that will be the topic. And we can come in together and we can learn from one another. Because ultimately, the most important thing in life, beloved, is for us to secure our, our, our salvation through our God. More important than family, more important than work, more important than even your own health is knowing and the peace that comes from knowing that you're safe in the loving arms of your heavenly the peace that comes from knowing that you're safe in the loving arms of your heavenly father uh, you cannot put a value on that be able to go through life regardless of your circumstances with peace contentment knowing that you're on the right path knowing that you're on the winning side knowing that you don't need to go through life being with consternation confusion and anxiety even though you may not be where you want to be that you can move forward in perfect peace. Perfect example of that, and I'll close with this, beloved, is that the early fathers of the church, when Peter was locked up in prison, no, was it Paul? Was it Paul and Silas? I forget. Goodness, I need to go back and reread these stories. They were locked in prison, in, the inner, in, in prison, in terrible situations, and probably because they were trying to make an example of these early members of the church, they probably put them in, they were in leg irons, and you know how, how evil cops are, how they'll put the handcuffs on you, intentionally try to hurt you and harm you, put them on overly tight because they're sadistic a-holes. Well, I would imagine that the Romans and the, were probably that way or worse back in the day. But the interesting story where these men were so secure in their faith with God and so, so devout and so hopeful and so filled with the Holy Spirit that the prison guards and the fellow prisoners marveled at these men because when they were in the darkest, deepest dungeon in this most horrible environment, rather than complaining and moaning and crying about their situation and feeling sorry for themselves, do you know what they were doing? They were glorifying God with singing, joyful singing, and the proclamation of, of good tidings. And it, everyone marveled. Everyone was in the worst possible situation. And here are these two men that were in the deepest, darkest inner area of the dungeon were rejoicing and happy and peaceful. And it brought, got a lot of attention from folks. The prison guards were, they couldn't believe it. They had locked up hundreds, if not thousands of people and knew the situation and knew how terrible it was and how men suffered in this environment. And yet these two followers of the way were full of joy. And not only that, where they were even singing. You know, that's the type of thing that you can have. That's what God can give you. He can give you a peace that defies all understanding where you can be 
regardless of your situation. You can be in perfect peace and enjoy knowing that God is in charge and that you have nothing to worry about. That's an incredible thing. And that's just the opposite of what a lot of you have experienced your entire life. So if you'd like to enjoy that, if you'd like to enjoy that peace, if you'd like to know that your, your history, that your future is secure, that you have eternal life waiting for you in the company of family and friends to be back reunited to your Heavenly Father, the one that loves you more than anyone, is an incredible thing. So this gift of salvation through Jesus Christ is not something that you should take lightly. It is the most important decision that you'll make. And we're here to try to figure that out, how to get you there. And I'm not going to bend your ear or Bible thump you or shame you in any way. I respect your opinions. I respect that you are a thinking individual, that you were created in the image of God, and I admire that. And I see you as a, a, on the same levels I see myself. But I don't want to be preached to. I don't want to be shamed, and I don't want to be, be Bible thumped on. I want to be given the information. I want to make the decision on my own. And the way that Paul did his ministry and the way he summed it up was so well, let every man be, be convinced in his own mind. Let every man come to, the, come to the realization on his own. And that's what we're about here. We're not about shaming anyone. We're not about inner circles. We're not about privileged groups, denominations. We're about getting down to the, to the nitty-gritty, what is the Word of God and what does it tell us about the character of God and how, what must I do to be saved? That's what we're about here. And until we have that determined, until you've got that figured out in your own life, then everything else is, is just pales in comparison and should until you get that cited. And what, what side you fall on is your decision. And I will respect you if you put the time in and you prayerfully read and study and go to God earnestly, seeking for guidance, seeking for the truth, and you come away uh, that Christianity is not for you, then you have my respect and the respect of the group, and you would be a welcome member here. But if you go forward criticizing Christianity based on Christians that you've run across or someone that wasn't living up according to the faith and you think that you, you put that upon all of us or everyone that's ever professed to be a Christian, then you're a fool for doing that. You need to go in and investigate yourself. Just because someone else had a bad experience, it'd be, it would be like your buddy buys a motorcycle, goes out and crashes it, and then you, you've never ridden a motorcycle and you say, well, motorcycles are dangerous and no good and no one should ever ride them. You've never even ridden one before. You're basing your opinion off of an experience that someone else had. <clears throat> and what if he wasn't properly trained? What if he didn't know what he was doing? What if he was not paying attention and on his phone? You know, you don't know what's going on. So the only safe route and the only manly thing to do is to go in and find out for yourself, not because of what someone else told you or someone else's experience. This is an important decision, beloved. It's the most important decision on your life. The next most important decision is your choice of mate your choice of mate. We have a super chat from our friend, the battle chemist. Shout out to you, brother, who writes, got my first ride in after 25 years away on my CR250L this last weekend, and I didn't drop it. The skills are quickly coming back to me. I'll tell you guys, I've been riding the 250L a lot. I don't remember having more fun on a motorcycle than I've been having on that silly little 250L. That, 
That is a brilliant motorcycle. It is, I bought this for my wife. This was an entry-level motorcycle. It was never anything that I would ever consider for myself. I thought it was too, I'm, I'm too cool for this. I gotta have big horsepower and I can't be riding that silly little entry-level bike. Well, goodness, that's the only bike I wanna ride now. I, I, I've been, I, I thought it was gonna be a pavement queen, but I decided uh, Saturday, I rode, put 100 miles on it of hard stuff. All the hard stuff that we ride, not, I mean, not the super hard stuff, but pretty hard stuff. Technical, rocky, hill climb, single track. That machine absolutely dominated. It did so well. Was it as good as my 300? No, of course not. But it was excellent. I couldn't believe it. I was so impressed. It, it, after being on it for 100 miles, I felt like it was my motorcycle. I felt like it was a bike that I had been on my entire life. The one word I would give for that motorcycle is one word, two words, confidence inspiring. Confidence inspiring. It is an excellent, excellent machine. I'll tell you the truth. I have, I'm looking for another motorcycle for myself. I, I, have, I have two motorcycles. I have a snow bike. I have a KTM SX, SXF 250 that's converted to a full-time snow bike. There's no wheels, never gonna be wheels on it. So there's that, that's winter time. Then I have my 300, two-stroke, full-on race bike, hard enduro, not a road bike at all. So there's really been lacking in, in my, for someone who motorcycles are a big part of my life, lacking has been something that's a true dual sport that I could do 50-50. I could go on road rides that are going to be better than the two-stroke. And so one thing that I'm seriously considering after Saturday's ride on that 250L is I think I'm going to get one for myself. Um, they're affordable. You can get into them for, for under $5,000, and they are brilliant machines. I mean, if you just were going to have one, a one, a true dual sport, a 250L is beautiful. So in researching this, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll just, rather than buy something expensive or Austrian, maybe I'll just get, I'll just get the same bike that Mrs. W is going to be riding and just get another 250L. And then looking at it and watching, I've watched every single video on them on YouTube. What I think I've decided on is I'm down to two bikes. I am so split on these two bikes that I could go either way. And to be honest with you, if I were to show up to, let's say I was going to go get one. If I showed up to a dealer and they had one of these two bikes and they didn't have the other, I would probably be able to, to get one and not have any regret. The two bikes that I am down to right now, and this could change, would be the 650 XR, the L. 2023, you can buy that bike brand new for $6,999, under $7,000. Big 650, good for big riders, great power, classic bike. Hasn't changed since 1993, not super sophisticated, doesn't have the latest stuff, but it's just a good, solid, reliable, cool motorcycle. Love that motorcycle. In my top two, I'll tell you the other one, and maybe in my top one, I might even consider it above this, is going to be the 300 CRF L the predecessor to the, to the 250. A lot of upgrades um, that were answered to problems that the 250 had, a little bit more power, not so wide, uh, a little bit different geometry, uh, suspension, seat height, all the things that, just little improvements that all stack up to be a better bike. Because I have to say the top of my list right now, if I could find one, I'd probably go get one, would be a Honda CRF, 300L or the 250. Both good. But excellent. Man, what an excellent machine. I'll tell you this. 
Jack and I, my son, is 18. We have had a very friendly rivalry over the last three years of who's got the better moto. Jack rides a 2021 KTM 350, four-stroke. I ride a 2018 Husqvarna TE 300, two-stroke. So, of course, the rivalry rages back and forth between two-stroke and four-stroke, right? And, of course, he's on the four-stroke side. Well, I've been telling him for years that the TE 300 is a superior machine, but he would not have it. He thinks it was too radical, too autistic, too scary. He'd got on it when he was little and scared him a little bit. Well, now he's a competent rider. Now he's a man. He's 18. I told him, I'm like, you got to ride this. Just try it now that you're a better rider. Well, he got on it. I got on his bike. And he had to admit after an hour that the 300 was the far superior bike, that he likes it a lot better than the 300 for various, various reasons. So he loves my bike now. Sunday, this was Sunday, the warband came over. We're going on a ride. Jack's on his 350. I'm on my, I'm on my, my 300. We go out, do some trips. We decided to go on a little bit of a road ride. We're coming back by the house. I said, hey, would you guys mind if I pull in, dropped off the Husky, picked up the 250L, Mrs. W's bike, right? Uh, and I can continue the journey on that because it's going to be some road riding, and I just love that motorcycle. It's, I have so much fun on it. Okay, no problem. So we swung back in. I put the 300 back in the stall, grabbed the Honda, the 250L. We go back out. We're riding for about a half hour. I tell Jack. I'm like, Jack, you got to try. Oh, and so Jack, so what he does, since I'm not riding my two-stroke, he said, well, I'll ride your bike and I'll put mine away. So he's now on my 300, my two-stroke, and I'm on the CRF 250L. Well, we're riding for about a half hour, and I said to Jack, I'm like, Jack, this is a brilliant little motorcycle. You got to ride it. Okay, so we switch. I'm back on my 300. He's on the, he's on the, the 250 CRF-L. We ride for about 15 minutes. He's not saying anything. I ask him. We've got the headsets on. So what do you think of that Honda? He's like, well, it's pretty darn good. It's really, really fun. This is a great motorcycle. And I said, are you ready to tra trade back? And he's like, nope. <laughs> so I didn't get it back. So I, rode, I ended up being back on my two-stroke on the, on the road, which is not ideal. And Jack would not give back the, the L, uh, that 250. That's how much he loved it. Just an absolutely brilliant little motorcycle. Um, when I rode the 100 miles, I think it was Saturday on that, really the first ride where I took it out and really put some abuse on it, you know, really rode it hard, you know, to see what it was capable of. I normally don't ride 100 miles, and this was all off-road. I usually, about 60 or 70, I'm, I'm pretty well tired and ready to come in. It's a, it's a, that's a lot of miles on hard, on hard ground. I put in 100, and I came in at well after dark because I just was having so much fun on this motorcycle on the same stuff that I ride all the time, the normal routine stuff, but this, this bike made the riding so fun and the experience so great, I just kept going back. I'd circle back to the house and I'd just say, just one more loop, just one more. And I kept doing that and kept doing that because the motorcycle was brilliant. $5,000 invested into that machine and I cannot tell you the, the pleasure and the joy that it's gonna bring. An excellent machine. My goodness, what a dual sport. Honda has really nailed it with this machine. Just smiles, it just smiles. Everyone that I put on it, the same thing comes back. That is fun. That's what it was like to ride a motorcycle when I was eight years old, when I was on the trail, eight, trail 90. That's the experience that I had, again, 
And that's from someone that has access to the best bikes. Um, you know, my, my bike is, you, you know, it's, it's the cutting edge of technology, or, or near the cutting edge of technology. And I have more fun on that silly 250 dual sport. Amazing. Shout out to the battle chemist. You chose wisely. I would say the only way a guy could get better for a true dual sport was maybe that 300, and that's marginal. We have a super chat from Deacon Scalsinger. Shout out to you. Welcome, brother, who writes, Start easy. How to read the Bible properly without getting confused. Some are not as versed as others. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's... I'll, I'll consider that. You know, that, that is a very... Actually, a good topic. How do you start? How do you study? How do you truly study God's Word and get something from it and not just get burnt out and get all bogged down by the these, thous, and thous, and, and all that, that, and, that and ancient language, right? I get that. Yeah, keep, let, keep them coming in. Let me know what you guys think, and, and we'll, uh, we'll figure something out. But that might be something that we just incorporate into the live stream. You know, maybe it's the Sabbath sermon, which would take place on Friday evening. That would be more appropriate. We could, we, we, there aren't any rules here. We're building this plane as we're flying it, and you guys uh, can, by and large, can spec out the parts that we're going to be putting on it. So take advantage of that. We're all here to learn together. Our friend Gamer Dave, shout out to you, brother. Good to see you back in the comments. Writes, hey, Cody, been doing our gardening, garden and found big problems with something I fear is bark beetle killing our hedge and rotting also a patch on maple trees that I cut out and cleaned. Um, plunged the pat, and plat, you plunged it and patched it with a piece of wood. Any advice? Man, the, I don't know about your deciduous beetle, what's taking place over there, but I can speak to the bark beetle that's decimating the forests out west, primarily the ponderosa pines. I had a woodlot at the previous location, so I spent a lot of time looking into this because I was protecting my woodlot. I did not want this to happen, and I had access to some really good foresters that were really at the cutting edge of this. And I can just tell you what I learned, just in a nutshell, what you can do. I don't know that there is a solution, but, there, but here, according to foresters, what they told me is that if you get it on your land, if you get a tree that's infected with the bark beetle, you've got to get rid of it. Take that tree down and get that tree away from the forest. One of the worst things you can do with the bark beetle in this area, is, and guys will do, is they'll find a bark beetle that's in the tree. And usually you can tell because the tree will start dying. The conifers will, will start, the top will die. They'll die from the top down. It'll get red, orange, start losing its needles and such. Get that thing down and get rid of it. Burn it with the beetles in it. What people will do is they'll take it down and then they'll cut it up for firewood and then they'll stack up that firewood right there in the stand, you know, to come back for later. And what happens is that that draws more bark beetles. And now you basically have a bark beetle incubator in your stand that's going to, it could bring potential problems. So again, I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know about the deciduous stuff. I would imagine it's similar, but I think you're on the right track. Get it out of there get the tree down if it's that gotten that bad and get it away burn it don't store it for firewood don't let it incubate other bark beetles also you know this is my theory 
I, I think argument could be made for this, um, but one thing I believe that's happening out west, is the, and one of the problems is, and is monocultures, meaning when we replant forests, when originally, when the first settlers came into the Pacific Northwest and the valleys with the, the massive uh, forests, the Douglas firs, the western red cedars, the ponderosas, the silver firs, the white firs, the sequoias, all of those, you came in, when you came into God's natural forest, it was a very diverse forest. There was, there was a, a sprinkling of all different types of species. And we're finding out now that these species of trees, sometimes they can work together. For example, there may be a particular insect or a bark beetle or a bug that will come in and really attack the ponderosa pine. It's, his, it's its bread and butter. It just loves that ponderosa pine. And it just goes through it like a goose. Oh. It, goes, it, it likes it. Well, it also can be that growing right next to the ponderosa pine is a western red cedar or a Douglas fir tree or some other species of tree that the pine, needle, pine beetle does not like. Actually, it, it, it abhors it and it avoids it at all costs. And the two trees have a kind of a symbiotic relationship where they protect and help one another. And this is the way God has, has made the world and how everything was originally designed to be. Well, what man does is he doesn't work, with, we don't work with nature. We, instead of working with nature and learning from it and trying to operate within its bounds and, and, and to be wiser for it, we want to dominate nature. So we come in and we clear cut everything and cut everything down and then we decide, okay, we want to replant so that we have, we have a healthy forest in the future. And rather than putting it back the way that God designed it, we look at the finances and we ask ourselves, what's the most valuable tree? Well, whatever that may be, whether it be Western Red or Douglas Fir, we plant all Douglas Fir because that's where the money is. Now we have what we call a monocrop. A monocrop, very different than a natural occurring forest that's diverse. Well, again, this is my speculation. This could be wrong, but I think that there's some validity to it. The bark beetle comes in that loves a particular tree or insect, that Douglas fir. Well, now it's off to the races. It's got nothing, no insecticides. It's got nothing that repels it, and it just comes in and decimates everything. So any sort of a sickness, it just goes from tree to tree to tree or bug, and, and then you have these massive forests that are just destroyed, primarily because this monoculture deal. You know, it's a very short-sighted way to, to manage forests. I think it's a very short-sighted way, short way to manage uh, crops. Um, and we've, we've heard of crop rotation. That's back in the days when, when cotton was king in the south. Vast swaths of farmland were completely destroyed and depleted of, of everything that was needed to grow crops because the cotton is so, uh, requires so much from the ground and it depletes it. And so after several cotton crops, you can't hardly grow anything there. The soil is almost dead, and there was problems. Something that happened and was realized years ago was it, these, these farms that were devoid of nutrients because of overuse or overgrowing of cotton, that could be repaired by planting peanuts that would reintroduce, you know, who knows how it works. I'm not a farmer. I'm just reciting what I learned. And that they, if they would rotate crops where they would maybe do cotton and then do peanuts, that, that they complemented one another. What was leached out of the soil by the cotton was put back by the peanuts or whatever, however that works. And I think the same principle 
should apply in the forest. So if you ask me what I think about clear cutting and, and modern forestry and how they manage forests, I think these monocultures are a, are a reason why we're having these devastating fires, why we're having a reason why we're having these devastating insect infestations, etc. So I don't know, you're just, you're on the back end of a lot of really poor forest management monocrops that you have to deal with and the chickens are coming home to roost. So I don't know if there's anything that you can do more than what you've done, uh, but get it out of your woodlot and hopefully you can stem the, uh, you, you can save, save your trees. Good question though. Game, thank you, Gamer. Thank you, Gamer Dave. We have a super chat from 451 Fahrenheit. 451 Fahrenheit, I believe, is the temperature that paper burns. That is a book that is also on the top 100, the mandatory pro-ho reading list, Fahrenheit 451. You need to read that. Very prophetic. 451 writes thus. Hey, Cody, I'm an 18-year-old welder, production worker. I was wondering if you think the one-wheel pint would be worth it as a hobby pastime uh, that is not indoors on video games, or is it a waste of cash? It is not. Now, I would not encourage you to buy the pint. It's too small. Unless you are a little kid uh, or sub 130, 140 pounds, I would not recommend it. It's more difficult to ride. It's definitely more squirrely. I have one. I have one. I, I've got four one wheels. If you look behind me, I've got a pint, I've got two XRs, and I've got a GT. No one rides the, the, the pint. Everyone hates the pint. Even people with pints that come over, if there's an extra board that's not a pint, they will leave their pint here and they'll take the XR or the GT. It's too small. The battery range is not very good. Uh, and it's very wobbly and squirrely and, and more difficult to ride. It's appealing because it's cheaper. I would not buy one. I would buy a used XR that was in good condition over a brand new pint any day of the week. Better than the XR and Overton. See, my, Overton and myself, we both ride one wheels. We both have, we've drank, drunk the Kool-Aid and understand what a great sport it is. It's a great sport because one, it's affordable. And you can do it anywhere. You don't have to gear up. You don't have to make a bunch of plans, set a bunch of time aside, have to deal with gear, complications. You don't have to load up the boat trailer. You don't have to have all this stuff. And you can take it with you anywhere. And if you just have an hour just to get out and just to get outside and just go carve and put your, put your headphones on and listen to some good music, get your Audible. That's the perfect time to listen to your audiobooks. One of the things that the Warband does is we go out and we listen to another book that we're currently working on, The 48 Laws of Power. You should be reading The 48 Laws of Power, beloved, right now. Now, The 48 Laws of Power have been written by very wise men that will give you the ability to make good decisions in difficult situations throughout your life. In marriages, relationships, work, it will give you an incredible insight of how to have an advantage over a lot of other people. The 48 Laws of Power is a very, it, it's a very heavy book. It's not something that I would recommend that you sit down and read cover to cover. The 48 Laws of Power should be read like this, about one chapter a week. Listen to it. Listen to chapter one. 
Each chapter is laid out by one of the 48 laws. It will give the law and then a really, really interesting historical example of how the law worked or didn't work in, in important situations of major historical events. And it's very applicable to your own life. It, it's so important, these 48 laws of power, to know these and to understand them that you need to cogitate on them. So that's why I would recommend it when you're reading it. And the one wheel is the perfect time to do this. This is what I do. I go out on my one wheel in the evening, put in my earbuds. I'm on law 12. I'm on law 13 and then about one a week. And that way you can think on it through the week and kind of really apply it. But to answer your question, the one wheel is not a waste of money. It is a life-changing sport. It's in the, my top two or three. I would forsake a lot of the things in my life. I would forsake skiing and snowboarding over one wheeling. Um, but my, if I could only choose two sports, it would be one wheel and moto. And I might even take one wheel over snow biking. So yeah, get one. Do not buy a pint. Uh, buy an XR if you can't afford a GT. But if you really want to do it right, buy once, cry once, and have the cutting edge. There is a huge improvement in range, performance, power, speed, just security, just how safe you feel on the thing of the GT over the XR. It's, it's pretty big. And if you were to ask Overton, uh, he would tell you the same thing, being an owner of both. And he recently made the upgrade. So yes, it is. Uh, the one wheel is a great sport and I would, I'm a huge advocate of it and a great company too. Yeah, get one. Go get one. Learning curve is quick. Do two things though. Make sure you get some good skate shoes, get some Vans or, or something that has got a good flat bottom uh, that's made for grip tape. Skate shoes are important. Wear a helmet, please. Wear a helmet and I would recommend wrist guards. Wrist guards are inexpensive. Skaters use them. Rollerbladers used to use them. It's basically a support that goes around your wrist that has a plastic, hard plastic uh, slider. So if you go down, it prevents your wrist from coming back and breaking them. My sister broke her wrist that way. Um, if you go down and you will go down, it, the plastic protects your hands and it's the single most, that and the helmet are very important. So skate shoes, wrist guards, and a good bike helmet. Have, have those for sure. Yeah, big fan of the one wheel. All right, I'm going to shut it down. I got going too long here. I'm starting to... Oh, we have one, one last super chat. We have a super chat from our friend Overton uh, who writes, uh, I ride OW in loggers exclusively. Well, Overton rides his one wheels in logging boots. Um, I personally don't. don't. Uh, I, I, I find that doesn't work for me. Uh, anything with a heel. See, there are sensors built in to the, uh, the pad, on the front pad, um, that are very responsive and very sensitive to, to your weight distribution and how you're lifting your feet and, and such. And having a, a, a gap with a heel and a toe, that, that gap in the middle, I find that foot placement, it, it's a problem sometimes. Can you do it? Overton does it. Um, do I recommend it? Uh, I, I do not. So we have different, a different opinion on that. I would, not ride, I would not ride in logging boots. But apparently you can. Yeah. And I think Overton would, would, I could ask him, you know, he can chime in on this, 
would, is the GT worth the extra money over the XR? Uh, I would say yes. It's a whole leap in technology. Um, and especially if you are a full-size man, you know, grown, grown man, you know, if you're pushing up in the 200 pound area, uh, the GT is, is what you want. Yeah, all right. Thank you, beloved. Please keep my family in your prayers. We pray for you all constantly. I sure appreciate everything. Thank you to the middlemen. Thank you to uh, Overton. Thank you for all of the great donations and the good ideas. And uh, that's it. Keep me in your prayers. We'll see you guys on tomorrow's.